Fun with Failure is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hi, welcome to Fun with Failure, a podcast about individual and organizational resilience. It's where we laugh with and at you about your flaws, fears, and failures. I'm your host, Dr. Alexis Carrera. Let's have some fun. My guest today is Keith Ludeman. Keith's business experience began with IBM, where he spent the first seven years after college working in a variety of technical and sales positions. After leaving IBM, he helped grow a retail services technical consulting group and an e-commerce consulting division that were both acquired. He later became the director of software marketing for JBA as they were being acquired by Avnet, a Fortune 100 $7 billion hardware, software, and services firm. In 1999, seeing a large opportunity in the e-mortgage market, Keith left Avnet to found GoodMortgage.com, an award-winning direct-to-consumer internet mortgage lender. The company received the Online Lender of the Year Industry Award at the Mortgage Bankers Association National Meeting and was subsequently purchased by a PIMCO-backed entity in 2016. Today, Keith is an active venture investor in the Charlotte region, serving as the executive director of Innovate Charlotte and is the board chair of the Queen's University Entrepreneurial Leadership Circle Advisory Board. Hi, Keith. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's great to be here and listening to all that. I'm, I'm starting to feel old. <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. Well, you should start to feel accomplished. I think that is a better way of thinking about it. Yeah, being an entrepreneur, I don't think you ever get to that point where you feel totally accomplished. No, even with all that? No, even with all that. There's still a hunger to do more. Well, see, that's good. I think that that's good. That's also the sign of, a, of an entrepreneur. There's always something in the mix. Yeah, that's one of the diseases of being an entrepreneur. You seem to never be satisfied, but it's great. That also helps you under overcome failure, which is what we're going to talk today. Yeah. And by the way, I can't help thinking about Sheldon Cooper fun with flags oh. when you say fun <laughs> with failure. So I hope nobody else has said that before. No, they have not. But that is, that is funny. I will be Amy. Oh, what's her last name? Farrah Fowler. Yeah, Amy yes. Farrah. I will be the Amy Farrah Fowler to your Sheldon Cooper. Sheldon Co- I'm dorky enough to be Sheldon Cooper. So and, well, I'm dorky enough to be Amy, so we're gonna, this is going to be fun. Innovation Week is next week in Charlotte, and you are taking part in Seed the South. Seed the South is a high-profile event bringing together startups and investors as a way to highlight, celebrate, and grow the entrepreneurial scene here in Charlotte and in the Southeast. Before we talk about your involvement in Seed the South and your advice for people pitching at the event, I want to talk about your experience at IBM. How did your work there after college lay the foundation for your entrepreneurial journey? You know, it was really kind of a coincidence. I thought I was going to do my two years at IBM and then jump off and get an MBA at a major school and then move on to a different part of my career. But around I was 22, 23. IBM in the late 80s was going through a massive transformation away from being a hardware company into being a software and a services company. And as I told my boss, hey, I'm probably going to be leaving in the next year to go back and get my MBA. And he said, well, we have an opportunity for you here. And it involves starting up a service as a consulting business in the state of South Carolina. At that point, IBM was divided by states. So we had the state trading area. Well, it, it didn't occur to me till a couple of years later that it was probably the two youngest guys that were the least entrenched that raised their hand and said, okay, we'll go figure this out. Yeah. But it was a great opportunity to really be an entrepreneur within the arms of a company like IBM with all the resources that that provided us. 
Uh, now, we were lucky, and we had a whole lot of fun in what we put together, but we were able to grow a $33 million business in the first three years, and that was wow. a great launching point, but it really kind of fueled my fire for how do you invent, how do you create, how do you start a company, and what are the things you need to worry about as you grow? In fact, I came from, as I think about it, my grandparents you know, worked for the same company for 40 years. One required from, uh, retired from International Harvester and the other one from uh, the Bell System, AT&T Bell System. My dad was a professor at Clemson University for 35 years. I had no idea. I thought, I'll go work for a company. Maybe I'll jump around, get an MBA. Maybe I'll come back to the same company. But I had visions of retiring with a pension from probably the same company. So that IBM thing really just kind of fell into your lap. Uh, it did. And, you know, I, I, if I went on and got an MBA, maybe I'd come back to maybe IBM. Maybe I wouldn't. You know, my parents were shocked that I would leave a great job after a couple of years. And turns out it took more than a couple of years to leave the, the, the job. But it's, it was a culture change uh, to be one of the first people to leave IBM. And what's interesting, even the people at IBM, and we'll move forward to that in a minute, were amazed. How can you leave a great job like this? Well, strangely enough, 10, 15 years down the road, employment is a lot more mobile so accidentally, I was a little bit of a trendsetter, not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it is that they saw in you at IBM to ask you to take on this huge challenge? You know, honestly, uh, I'd like to have some really elegant answer, but I think it's we were the only two dumb enough and not making <laughs> enough money to, with the old line of business. Uh, they said, well, let them figure it out because we've got to assign two people to it. What's interesting, though, is my business partner that we put this together with at IBM, he's still at IBM. Oh, really? So he decided to stay and move forward. I was a year or two younger than him, so maybe the bug bit us in different ways. Interesting. So according to your bio, you worked in a variety of technical and sales positions at mm -hmm. IBM. Do you consider yourself someone who understands both how to build a product and how to sell it? You know, uh, uh, IBM did a great job of, of cleaning me up, I guess, when I went to work for them. So uh, when I went to college, I was a little bit of an athlete. I played tennis, but I was also president of the Math Honor Society. So if you can imagine, I had two very, very different sets of friends. Yeah. And that, I think, provided a little bit of a skill of translating between the two. So I started off as a systems engineer with IBM, moved into sales, then into management. But I had no problem talking to either the technical people, the technical managers at the customers, designing uh, a solution, designing a system. So it's a weird how this confluence of experiences has come together. Let's talk a little bit about goodmortgage.com. Mm -hmm. What is it and how did you come up with the idea? I was looking for a company to start after doing a lot of very technical startups that had to do with product or software for the longest time. I was looking for a startup that wasn't pure tech, but would use a lot of tech. And if you think back to the mortgage business in 1999, it was still a very paper-based business. You would open up the phone book to call which mortgage company and get their rate quotes, ask them about the process, make an appointment, take time off work to go in to visit the company. There had to be a better way. And the internet was just starting to evolve. And I had some experience with delivering e-products previously from a previous job and thought, wow, this is going to be great. I owned a couple of rental properties at the time. So I'd make the joke that I was the user for the longest time. And I said, well, maybe I'll become the dealer, you know, work on the other side of the table and thought they'd be great to make money. If you looked around at that point in time, e-loan was just starting, which was a very large mortgage broker. Uh, Quicken Loans was starting, and I think Dan Gilbert did a better job than I did. He owns a basketball team, and I have season tickets, so I think he <laughs> won that one a little bit. Um, but it, it just seemed like a, a good market to enter because it was growing very slow. Got it. So tell me how you built it. 
Did you bootstrap it? Did you go after investors? How did you find customers? Walk me through that process. Yeah, sure thing. So I decided to bootstrap it because I'd had the luxury of a couple previous smaller exits. So I and I noticed that it was going to grow very slow too. I think mortgage market, the online mortgage market, was going to be fifty percent of all the loans in seven years. So by two thousand six, so it was growing very slow. Uh, there were some competitors that went out after it with a lot of venture capital. Mortgage.com was one. I think they raised close to three hundred million. But the market just wasn't, the customer adoption wasn't fast enough in order to make that return worthwhile for them. So self-funded, we became very focused on providing a lot of good content for the customer, not knowing that that's where search engines were to go in three or four years. So again, a little bit of luck more than, you know, intentional uh, being smart. Uh, So we created a lot of content with mortgage calculators, mortgage school. We tried to provide a ton of information. What's interesting is that got a lot of complaints from our competitors. You're taking away the secrets of the business. But we thought that that deserved to be in the hands of the customers, so we put as much out there as we could. Now, when we moved away from Yahoo, because back in those days, Yahoo would manually review you and decide to give you a listing and what the description was, when it got to organic search, we were placed very highly because we'd been there for a while and our content was very valuable. So an accidental lucky discovery that brought our cost of marketing way, way down. Well, I love what you said about value, right? And the value that you were bringing to the, to the customers. It's almost like when you're building a business, always bring, always add more value than you even think that the customer might need. Well, you try to do that in every transaction in your yeah. life, right? Provide value before you ask for something and, you know, earn it because very little in life these days is given. Yeah. And you definitely were ahead of the curve in terms of providing content, like rich content for people. Mm-hmm. Because we thought it was the right thing to do, not because we were trying to to game the search engines. And that's lucky that the market came to us. Well, and the idea also of putting those tools in the consumer's hands and the Mm -hmm. customer's hands, right? Buying a house is a huge investment. It's the number one. You're going to spend more money on that over the course of your life than probably anything. It's a huge purchase. So empowering customers to figure out, hey, here's your own mortgage calculator. Mm -hmm. Here's what it's going to cost. Here's what you're going to need. Here's what you're going to need month after month. And giving that away, it's interesting to me that your competitors would say, hey, don't don't give that to them. Those are our secrets. That's usually an indicator that they probably should be given away. Well, and if you think about it, it's very low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, shelter, right? And it's the yeah. largest financial transaction. So yeah, it brings a lot of stress. So if we could take the temperature down by giving them more value, by making them more comfortable when you come into the transaction, we decided to do what we could. So you didn't get any investment capital? No, it was all self-funded. And we focused on making profits fairly early. In fact, we were profitable uh, month three. Wow. But I can't say we were in a great office space at the time. You know, if you think about computer networks, we had cables hanging from the ceiling and we're working on benches. It looks very much like a co-working space these days, probably in a class C space, but that's that's how we started. But that's sort of the heart and soul, right, of a startup. You're just in there every day, 12 Mm -hmm. hours a day, 14 hours a day, bootstrapping it. There's something about that energy that is really exciting and of course exhausting but yeah. exciting pay no attention to what goes on behind the curtain so right. i'm glad the customers didn't come in our office it was all online but yeah it was a, it was exciting and fun what about marketing it how did, did you market it at all or were you just hoping that people would find you through searching online well uh, mainly search engines and we did some marketing you know back in those days you applied to google and you had to pay them a couple hundred dollars to be listed uh, excite was another search engine you know, there were five or 10. There was no dominant search engine at that point in time. Yep. So we would focus on one after the other to try to get a good ranking. So we worked on a lot of organic traffic. 
So what advice do you have? Um, I know that you didn't go down the investor route, mm-hmm. but you are an investor now. Right. And you're involved in the entrepreneurial scene here in Charlotte and beyond, and you mentor and advise startups. What advice do you have for listeners who are just starting to pursue investors? Where do you start? Yep, go seek a mentor. It's amazing. One of the great things that Charlotte has is an ability to help. It, you can contact almost anybody in the city, you know, even probably up to Hugh McCall if you know some of the right people. They'll offer to help you. Now, they're not going to roll up their sleeves and do the work for you, but sure. to meet with you for lunch, to give you some advice. There are a ton of successful entrepreneurs that will reach out and, and give you a hand. And if you have a mentor, you're three times as likely to succeed as opposed to failure right off the bat. So if we can cut that window of opportunity down for you to help you be more successful sooner, uh, we will. And that goes not just for me, but most people in the uh, in the startup industry here. So if people are listening and they are in Charlotte and they are interested in getting into the entrepreneurial scene or already in it or thinking about pitching or are pitching and mm-hmm. see the South, tell me a little bit about Innovate Charlotte. What do you do there as the executive director and what does the organization do? Yeah, one of the problems I noticed after I was done being an entrepreneur, decided to go out and help the startup community, being an investor and working with startups, I heard this very common complaint. Startups where, hey, there's not enough capital to support us. You know, how do we get capital released in Charlotte, either from angel investors, VC, or, you know, why is all the capital got to come from out of town? But for the funds where I was invested and the investor groups I was with, they kept saying, we need better companies. And there's a little bit of a gap there. You know, if, if your kid plays high school football, they're more likely to make it to the NFL than you are if you're going to do a startup and you're going to get venture funding. Venture funding is pretty rare. But everybody lives off the stories of, hey, I read a business plan on the back of a napkin and I got funded in San Francisco. Sure. But, you know, those are, those are lottery winners. It doesn't happen that often. So we decided how do we make companies better so they are more investable. And it also was a way to take the uh, – investor community that a lot of them were former entrepreneurs to re-engage them with startups. So mentoring startups, and we started with eight, and I think we had 12 mentors to start. Now we've got 25 companies and over 50 mentors, all volunteer, that are helping these startups get off the ground, get launched, and become more investable as they move forward. So it was a way for mentors to give back, which is part of the nature of Charlotte, but also we can accelerate the startups as they move forward. So if there's um, people out there that are interested in getting mentored, mm-hmm. how do they apply to be part of Innovate Charlotte? Yeah, come to our website. It's inclt.org. And uh, the link on the menu is, uh, you know, become a mentee. And uh, Or if you're interested in mentoring, we need people with all kinds of skill set, not just former entrepreneurs. We're looking for, you know, former corporate folks or people that want to give back to the community. You can also apply to be a mentor there too. That's great. I love that that is here in Charlotte. That's so important. Uh, it is, but the number of organizations that are there to give back to startup and enterprises are amazing. You know, Pitch Breakfast is a great thing you can go to to see yeah. what pitches look like. One Million Cups that you talked about earlier is fantastic. Um, you can Google Charlotte Inno, I-N-N-O, uh, that does the On Fire Awards. And it's fantastic, the newsletter that comes out twice a week to tell you what's going on in the startup community. Yeah, and we, we d- did mention One Million Cups earlier. So I MC the event every month. Mm -hmm. And for anyone out there who's thinking about getting into the scene, One Million Cups is really part of the foundation of the entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's where people are just starting out to kind of dip their toe in and figure it out. So Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about it, if you're curious about it, 
One Million Cups is a great place to start. You don't have to feel overwhelmed. You can mm-hmm. come check it out. Everyone there is so supportive. Yep. And the whole event is really designed to support the people that are presenting and giving them feedback and providing them with advice and answering whatever questions they have about their businesses and how they might be successful. So it's a really collaborative and supportive place to go. It, it is all across Charlotte, and, and probably for this audience, since you're listening to a podcast, William Bissett has put together the Charlotte Angel podcast. That oh, has great. All, it's got a great series of stories from founders here who have started their company and sold their company and how they're staying involved with the community. Excellent. I love that. Okay, I will definitely check that yeah, out Yeah, all well. podcasts all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when you're an entrepreneur, it's a bit like being strapped into the front seat of an emotional roller coaster. Oh, absolutely. It, that never stops for years on end. The highs are really high and the lows are really low. So what advice do you have for managing the highs and the lows? You got to be a little bit crazy to start a company, right? Because you've got to have the courage to step out and do it to start with. Uh, but I believe there's a little bit of formula that uh, if you've got a little bit of uh, ADD and a little bit of OCD, you're probably going to be successful because you've got to change uh, gears very quickly, whether it's talking to a different customer, whether it's talking to different investors, whether you're talking to employees. As CEO and founder, you've got to move very quickly from place to place. But there are times you've got to tune everything out and really focus in, and maybe that's where the, the little bit of OCD kind of helps. But yeah, it, it's tough. And that's where having a mentor will actually help too, because you go through these this emotional roller coaster. And if you ever talk to an entrepreneur, if you're not one, ask them how things are going, and you're going to hear fine or good. And that's about as much as you're going to get. But the reality of it, you've got challenges with customers, with vendors, with uh, funding sources with your employees, you've got this chaos that's going on every day and you need somebody who can be an outlet that you can talk to. Yeah. What's interesting also, new things happen, pop up all the time. You're like, oh, now I have to manage employees and I never had to do that before. Yes. And now this is on fire and I have to put that out and I've never done that before. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's kind of a wild ride. It's kind of like every day you've got 10 pounds of sugar, you've only got one five pound bag and you've got to make sure you put the right five pounds of sugar in the bag. <laughs> But you're going to have leftovers. You're going to have spilling. So it's it's how do you get the most done without working 24 hours a day? So as an investor, what do you look for in a founder of a company? Like when when you're interviewing people or when you're being pitched, what is it about a founder or the team specifically that will sort of stop you in your tracks and make you think, okay, this they're onto something? It, it, it's not just the business idea. It's the team that's around them. It's you get a feel for how resilient they are. Are they willing to pivot? Are they so married to the idea that, you know, damn the markets, they're going to make this successful? Now, that has its place, and, you know, there are place and time that that may be the right thing to do. But if you look at Twitter, if you look at Facebook, if you look at a lot of the successful companies these days, they pivoted at some point along the way. So you're looking for that magic in the founder to realize, hey, I'm pushing a piece of string up here, uphill, but there is a market opportunity over here that ends up being huge. So that adaptability and that willingness to change is very important. So talk to me a little bit, since the podcast is fun with failure, Mm -hmm. right? Not fun with an awesome company you started where nothing went wrong. (laughs) Um, Talk to me a little bit about some of your lows as the founder and CEO of Good Mortgage or in in whatever businesses you've been working at. Do you have a failure story or stories that you can share with us? Oh, I could be here all day. Awesome. I mean, there's there's so many. (laughs) You know, and it's easy to start up with the easiest one. You know, we started a mortgage company in 1999. In 2008, the whole housing market had crashed. And at that point, I just bought a 44,000-square-foot building, personally guaranteed the note myself that we moved the company into. Wow. And the reason we did that is 
around 2004, 2005, the subprime market started to explode, and nobody wanted to talk uh, to a normal mortgage company that was doing conforming loans. So I said, hey, I'm going to have to wait this out four or five years before the markets open up again, so might as well buy a building and pay myself rent as opposed to somebody else. I had no idea that the downturn would be as swift and as hard and as deep as it was. I remember in early 2008 going, yeah, this will pass by early 2009. We'll be off to the races again. We'll probably have a little bit of a refi boom. Did not realize it would be that deep and the amount of regulation and the pure catastrophic mess that happened to our housing market. In that case, thank God that Fannie Mae was there to actually start buying loans and putting some structure around the market so the mortgage market could keep moving again. I'd hate to think what would happen if uh, they hadn't been there. But that idea of, you know, uh, bought the building in February of 2008, moved in in August, August 15th of 2008, right? It was getting rock bottom. And I'm looking at our balance sheet going, you know, we can continue like this at this burn rate for about a year and a half or so. But, you know, I don't want to do that. That's spending all the money that we have. Uh, so we were hoping on that turnaround in the mortgage market. But th- at that point, it was educating employees, uh, understanding the funding sources for the loans, not for the business itself, and then deciding what we were going to be and where the where the world was going to be in the next year or two. But that was, uh, uh, I can't say it was failure because we made it through, but there were an awful lot of late nights. Uh, the only good part out of that is at the holiday parties that year, everybody wanted to talk to the mortgage guy. <laughs> to understand what was going on in the mortgage guy. Maybe that's why people uh, stop and they slow down when they see car accidents, right? That may have been part of it, but it was it was fun for about a year. It sounds like that would be terrifying. It I was. mean, yeah, that I mean, you know, having lived through it and seen friends who've gone through it and lost their homes mm-hmm. and the whole world was turned upside down and to be in that space mm-hmm. and to have signed the note where you're on the hook now for right. that building. How did you get through that? Like what, what coping mechanisms did you have? Were you sleeping a lot? Were you working out? Like how did you manage your mental health as much as the health of the business? It, it, it was tough because I thought about this company that I'd spent almost 10 years building and uh, it was doing very well and it could go away. And not only that, but all the wealth that I built from that could go away from the guarantee on the building. Um, a, a lot of working out, a lot of running, a lot of martinis. Uh, you, there's no way to, I mean, you can't just shut it down. You know, you just can't walk away from the building. They're going to come after, you know, your assets to do that. So the only way is to, to hunker down and get through it, try to keep as many of your employees focused and on board as you can. So it's a lot of cheerleading. So even though you're feeling that stress every day, it's no benefit to lead the company and let all that stress show through for everybody else. So right. it, it was hard to be a cheerleader when sometimes you're scratching your head going, is this really going to work out? I think it's going to work out. I hope it's going to work out. Yeah. I've talked to a lot of people on the podcast uh, who are solo founders. I've talked to co-founders and solo founders. The people that I've talked to in the past have said it's, you know, can be sometimes lonely at the top because mm-hmm. you don't have anyone else to really turn to, to talk to about it. It's just coming down on you. Yeah, what was that like for you? Well, you know, one of the best things that I did, and again, it's accidental, and it's probably one of the reasons I love mentoring so much, is uh, Terry Cox, who was running the Business Innovation yeah. and Growth Council at that time. She's great. She's over at TechWorks in Gaston yeah, County. Yeah, she's doing a great job over there. Uh, she put together a group of CEOs around 2003 that we all knew each other. We'd read about each other in the Business Journal, but we didn't really know each other. And David Jones, who was running Peak 10 at the time, brought us all together. 
and said, hey, we know it's hectic being an entrepreneur, so we need to have a safe space where we can actually talk about the challenges that we have. So that mentor group, and there's a lot of ways you can achieve that these days. Uh, EO has a great uh, mentor group that you can join if your company is of a certain size. Innovate Charlotte can help. There, there are a lot of opportunities for this. But having that mentor group of other CEOs that you can really sit down and have an honest conversation about your challenges. And there's no judgment. There's no pity. It's just you get some great intellectual help of, hey, I went through that, and here's how I got through it. it was so valuable. And that gave me a little bit of a, a, a comfort zone that I was around people that knew what I was facing. And they, they shared that with me, and they shared ways out and ways to help. But it is hard when you're by yourself. That's great. I love that. Yeah, never underestimate the value of a support group. Mm-hmm. Just to have to know that people have your back, and especially people who are in a similar situation to you, who've been there, who've gone through it, who've been to the other side, mm-hmm. and that where, yeah, you can have those authentic conversations. You can't do that in front of the team that you're leading because they'll they'll get scared. They'll mm-hmm. start to panic. It will right. ruin the culture culture inside the inside the company. But to have external colleagues that you can go to and say, "Hey, I'm kind of struggling." And they can say, yeah, so are we. Let's yeah. talk about it. That's huge. Well, you've got to be a topic of the podcast. You've got to be very vulnerable about your failures and your yeah. concern with failures. And the more you talk about it, the more it becomes a thing, not this scary unknown. And it's okay to fail as long as you recover and pick up and keep going along the way. Absolutely. I love that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But when we get back, uh, we're going to talk about Seed the South and what people can expect from the event next week. So stay tuned. Soreness and pain isn't always the result of activity. This is a 60-second wellness tip powered by Ortho Carolina. Prolonged sitting in a car or at your job aggravates muscles and joints and can cause pain. A standing desk can help. The key to alleviating the discomfort that sitting can cause is changing positions more frequently during the day. Alternating between sitting and standing at your desk, in addition to taking walk breaks and stretching, can work to loosen those tight muscles and joints. The perfect standing desk should be high enough so your computer keyboard is at elbow level and your monitor at face level to avoid neck strain. Before you start standing at your desk, take into consideration any knee or foot injuries and wear flat, comfortable shoes. This has been your 60-second wellness tip, powered by Ortho Carolina, official team physicians of the Carolina Panthers and proud sponsor of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more tips or to make an appointment, visit orthocarolina.com. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Seed the South. What's your role in Seed the South? And what advice do you have for the individuals practicing their pitches for next week? Keep practicing. Hey, don't stop. Understand when you're on stage that you know your topic, you know your company better than anybody else. So take it slow, take it from the beginning, and understand there's no reason to hesitate or to be stopped by anything. It's okay to say, I don't know if you're asked a question, but I'll find out. Uh, you'll get a lot of great ideas, but uh, you just the biggest thought, if you have one thought in your head when you go on stage, you know your company better than anybody else in the audience. So talk about it from the heart. Yeah. So my role is Seed the South. I'm a panelist this year and a big cheerleader of Sam. What she's put together and what she's brought to town has been fantastic. 
Yeah, she's great. She was on the podcast um, a couple, a little while ago, and she's just fantastic. She's so fun. Her energy is fantastic. Oh, yeah, and she's crazy good, right? <laughs> yeah. And she's really committed to also growing the scene here in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. She really wants, you know, it to be successful and to be make, make people successful. And she wants to share the spotlight with other people, which I think is great. Yeah, and what she's bringing to town. And, you know, she's going through the journey right now with her startup vision, yeah. which is starting to get some traction. And I've yep. seen it grow over the last year and a half, which is great. But but for her to take that, here's my experience in Charlotte. We need better companies. We be, need more exposure to funding sources, bringing people in from all over the country. Uh, and now with the second seed, the South, it's fantastic. You know, some quick stats on Charlotte it, for you to consider. We've got three unicorns in Charlotte out of the five in North Carolina. So there's examples right there. Charlotte is doing maybe better than Raleigh. We have three versus their two. We've had a billion dollars of exits in the last 12 months. 65% of all the new jobs come from startups. We've got over 10 accelerators and incubators and close to 20 co-working spaces. I mean, we've got the pulse of a startup community now, and people are just starting to realize it. And going back to your idea and recommendation about practicing, mm-hmm. Yeah, as a pitch coach myself, I cannot stress enough the value of practicing. Mm-hmm. You do it over and over and over and over again. Wake up. You know, if, if someone shook you out of bed at 1.30 in the morning and said, start at minute three, you should be able to start at minute three. You should know it forwards and backwards mm-hmm. without skipping a beat. And so if you're not at that level yet or not there yet, just keep practicing repetition over and over again yeah absolutely so does the look of the pitch deck matter to you so does it diminish the pitch if there are 12 lines of text per slide with all text and no images how important is the deck um to me it speaks a little bit to preparation so if you haven't spent the time to have a professionally put together deck and you're presenting on a tech company i'm wondering how good are your tech skills you know, and maybe those are really marketing skills, but that and along with uh, what at IBM, we called them Jaffers. Back in those days, remember, we didn't have PowerPoint. We had foils we had to put on a projector, yeah. right? Yeah. We called them Jaffers just to know the foil reader. Don't read your slides. You know, oh, amen. speak from the heart, speak on your product, have the slides be there for backup information. Now, it's a little different when somebody asks you to email out a pitch deck, so you've yes. got to have a different version of a pitch deck for yes, that. Yes, so yes. don't use the same pitch deck to email out that you're going to present to. Yeah, I see that all the time. People will be doing their decks or be like, oh, like, show me your deck. And they show me the what I think is the emailed version. Mm-hmm. And they think is the in-person version. And it's like, no, we got to kind of strip 90% of the yes. stuff off the emailed version and just have the audience focus on you. Because if the audience is focusing on the slides, we're compulsive readers. We're, you can't, mm-hmm. you know, we're just constantly going to be reading every single line. And if you have full sentences on a presentation that you're doing in, per, in person, you know, then we're going to be reading that. And what you're saying, what the presenter is saying, you're going to be way far ahead. And those things just don't line up, which means you just lost your audience. Yes. Yeah. Okay. You're not hearing the story. You're reading the story, which is a totally different experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as an investor, what are you looking for in a good pitch? What are the must-haves and what are the deal breakers? Uh, The passion around their product and where they are and their idea. That's going to be so important. Even if we think that idea needs to be pivoted, we want to see that you're 100% behind it. Because as the founder, you are the chief salesperson. 
you're the CTO, you're the chief marketing person, and you've got to believe in what you're doing. Now, combine that with the ability to pivot. It's almost like we want you to believe in what you're doing until you don't believe it anymore, but you're willing to change it. But you've got to have that passion and energy. And you can't project that if you're reading a foil. Like you said, you've got to wake up and be able to tell the story from minute three. That means you're living the story, you're believing the story, and you've got to be the number one fan. And, and don't take rejection just because a venture capitalist says no. It could be for a lot of reasons. It could be the funding thesis doesn't fit with your company. So a lot of people haven't really unpacked this. So if you think about a venture fund, they have to go out and raise money from investors. They're committing to those investors that they're going to invest in a certain type of company. That's part of the promise that they're making with the people that fund the venture fund. And they're going to give the money back in five to seven to nine years. And we're going to give you back more money than we started with. But we're going to have failures along the way, but we're going to hit some home runs. So if you're presenting to one fund and they say no, it could be because they can't. They had promises to their investors. But also the other side of that is you're going to expect some pressure from them because they want to be able to give the money back to their investors at some point. That's how they make the, that living. And so many companies, so many startups don't understand those mechanics. And once they, once they do, they go, oh, this makes sense. So you've got to cast a very wide net to find the right investor set that's going to help your business succeed. Yeah. There's also the thought of you don't have to go out and raise funding. You yeah. know, that money that you give up early on, that equity that you give up early on to angel investors is going to be worth a lot of money if your enterprise is successful. So don't be beholden to having to – the best money you can get is from a customer. It's called a profit, right? They're going to pay you revenue. And so the more that you can show traction, well, a couple things happen. One, you've got money coming in, and you can have a higher valuation, and you have to give up less of your equity. Uh, angel investors are called angels for a reason. They're hard to find, <laughs> right? They're super nice. And um, they really are. They really are taking a flyer on the belief that your company is going to be successful. So it's very hard to find that right match. In fact, I've heard that early fundraisers raise money from one of the three Fs, family, friends, or fools. But mm-hmm. I don't necessarily believe in that. So a lot of angels have made a lot of money. But you've got to understand, too, that they're going to, if an angel investor is going to be successful, they're going to invest in a lot of companies, and they're going to understand that a lot of them are going to go out and very few will become home runs. In fact, one of the great success stories in Charlotte was uh, the Charlotte Angel Partners, which was an angel funding group from probably close to 20 years ago. A bunch of people raised a lot of money, and I think they made 18 investments. My numbers may be off a little bit. 17 of those companies have gone bankrupt. The total investment is lost. That remaining investment that still hasn't paid them back after 18 years is Avid Exchange. Now, the amount of money they've made on that more than made up for all the money that they've invested. But they've been without access. The investors have been without access to their capital for 18 to 20 years. Yeah. That's, that takes an angel. Yeah. And for those of you that don't know or aren't, aren't in Charlotte, Avid Exchange is one of the unicorn companies mm-hmm. here in the city that we're pretty proud of. Yeah. Great success story. Growing rapid. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by Delivery Path. Are you happy with your website provider? Because I definitely am. I use Delivery Path because they specialize in web hosting, security, and optimization. That means my site is fast, secure, and stable. It's online all the time, and I don't have to worry about it because that's their job, and they're really good at it. They take care of the daily, weekly, and monthly upgrades, so my site is always up to date. 
Unlike discount WordPress web hosting companies, DeliveryPath provides concierge-level customer service. If you ever have a problem with your website, they don't just use chatbots to help you, they actually chat with you. When you call DeliveryPath, someone local answers the phone. When it comes to WordPress website hosting, you get what you pay for. So if you think your business is worth $5, then get a discount vendor. But if you really want your website to work for you, then let the experts at DeliveryPath manage it for you. And they're offering a special discount for our listeners. If you mention the promo code FUN, you'll get 10% off your first three months. For more information, visit DeliveryPath.com or email service at DeliveryPath.com. This episode of Fun with Failure is brought to you by The Pitch Prof. Do you ever wish you had more confidence as a public speaker? Is it holding you back from getting to the next level in your career? Or are you a small business or startup trying to raise capital or pitch investors? My company is The Pitch Prof, and my specialties are investor pitches, business presentations, and public speaking. I help clients develop, design, and deliver their presentations for maximum ROI. Whether you're going after 20 grand or 2 million, I can help you get the money you need so your business succeeds. I help my clients craft and structure the content in the presentation, visually design it, and deliver it as an authentic and engaging public speaker. If you want to advance your career or your business, hire a communication coach because what you say is as important as how you say it. Regardless of your skill level as a public speaker, I can help you communicate with confidence. To learn more or schedule a call, visit thepitchprof.com. So let's close it out with the lighthearted lightning round. Oh, fun time. Yeah. So what's your non-work-related superpower? My non-work-related superpower. I got to tell you a funny story. So my my daughter is eight, and she came home from school, and they had to write for Father's Day what their father's superpower was. And I have never laughed so hard when I saw that she wrote, pooping is my superpower. Now, I That's hilarious. To, I, now, I, I, I kept that. I think it's fantastic. She did it when she was six. <laughs> so, um, uh, my, you know, I, I think applying some of the things that have to do with my entrepreneurial life uh, to the rest of my life now, which is being able to change gears very quickly uh, to do one thing and then shift to another. And, you know, if you have a bad day, you got to shake it off in a hurry because you got to talk to somebody who doesn't care that you had a bad day and you got yeah. Yeah, you got to move on. So... I've tried to reapply those skills. Nice. What about a non-work-related kryptonite? Uh, you know, sometimes it, this is really weird. And uh, I've talked to a lot of other entrepreneurs about this who have exited. And it's not having enough stress. You know, all of a sudden you're so comfortable to be in under so much stress. Your engine is running at such a high level that the first couple years after you sell your company and you don't have that level of stress, you feel like something's missing. And... To me, I, I feel like sometimes I've just got to do stuff. I've got to be active, and that sometimes makes it hard to relax all the way, which after a long day of work when I was running my company, it was very easy just to disconnect and be super quiet and, and not do anything. But, you know, it's being used to not being stressed. Interesting. I love that. I've never heard that before. Well, I'm crazy and unique, I guess. <laughs> Interesting. So. <laughs> um, what are you afraid of? Um, wow. That's a great question. Uh, heights, for one. That's why I decided to start jumping out of planes so I'd get over it. And thankfully, I did and didn't lose my marbles. Um, you know, I'm not sure that anymore. I think I've been beat up so much over 19 years of entrepreneurship. I'm not sure if there is much anymore. But as I go through 
day-to-day life, I'm not saying I'm invincible or anything. I think I've just, I've gotten used to so much failure and that very little, I, I tend to go into a situation believing I can find a way out, you know, whatever it happens to be. So escape rooms are a lot of fun. So, you know, there's always a way out, right? <laughs> well, and I like also what you said about the fear of heights. So you started jumping out of planes. So exposure therapy worked mm-hmm. for you. Uh, it did. I figured, uh, now I don't remember the first 20 seconds out of the plane. I'll sure. tell you that much. And there's probably a lot of processing going on. And, uh, you know, you've got fight or flight. Yeah. You know, they told me my legs were running and my arms were punching. So I think I tried all different ways to get out of this. But then, you know, under the canopy, everything kind of sorted itself out. And you've done it multiple times? Uh, yeah, I've done it multiple times. But it used to be so bad that I couldn't climb 10 feet up on a ladder without being scared of heights. And now that's gone. Good for you. Yeah, but it's, yeah. you know, things you do when you're young and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, if there's one thing you could change about yourself, what would it be? Um, probably starting a company a little bit earlier. Uh, probably considering taking on some funding. You know, it's kind of interesting now looking that it took us 16 years to get to the point that we had a pretty big enterprise that we sold to a big private equity company. I feel like I could do it so much faster uh, mm-hmm. now that I've got the experience. So probably maybe trying a little harder in the beginning, maybe swinging for the fences instead of singles and doubles. You know, I'm not sure how my story would be written if that were the case. Uh, but, you know, that that's one thing I look back on it all the time is could I have done it better, faster? Uh, who knows? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Um, what do you think is the best part of the entrepreneurial scene in Charlotte? Uh, I, I would say the culture of Charlotte, and, and let me state that another way, the culture of Charlotte of people are genuinely willing to help you. It's amazing if you ask the amount of help and support that you'll get from former entrepreneurs, from funding sources, uh, from people that will help you with your pitch. Uh, You know, the funding sources that you can go to going, hey, this may not totally fit you, but what do you think of the pitch? Where could I do better? Who who are the people that can help me? Uh, People in Charlotte genuinely want to help. And I've I've spent a lot of time with people trying to unpack this. Is it the Southern Heritage? Well, no, it's not because most of us aren't from here. Yeah, but somehow, maybe you come to town, you get helped, and you think at some point I got to pay this forward. But people are genuinely nice here. So, what about is there what what do you think could be improved in the scene? Um, I think more exposure. Um, That's why I'm glad to see Charlotte Inno on the scene because we didn't have much press in the business community uh, in terms of the number of successes and the number of exits. And that led to a lot of people that, I know some people that have had $120 million exits, two founders that had sold less than 10% equity. So that's, you know, total for the company. Yeah. Zero press at all. And I went to them and said, why? why?" Well, they said, it it, it doesn't matter. You can go to the press, you can try to get in the press and you won't be in the press. I've heard, you know, I've heard the same exact thing and I don't know why. So people sometimes shy away from it. And that creates a cycle of people don't have role models to look up to, the people that have been successful that can do things. And so we've got to change a little bit of that ethos that maybe it's a little bit of being Southern and being humble. I don't want everybody to know that I had a great success. But it's so much easier for the startup founders to look up and go, hey, this person did what I want to do. Let me go talk to them. They'll help me. Yeah. The other thing I've heard about Charlotte and the startup scene and getting covered in the media here is that if... If another city covers you, <laughs> then the Charlotte media will cover you, yes. but it has to be external before it's internal, which I think is so strange. You can't be a prophet in your own hometown, right? That's an old saying, and I guess it's an old saying for a reason. Yeah, I guess so. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share 
or that you think would be valuable for the people listening? Uh, you've done a great job asking questions. And you threw me off a couple times with the, <laughs> the lightning round, which is really good. Um, and that's, I guess, part of being an entrepreneur, right? You got to think on your feet. You never sure. know what's coming your way. Yeah. So I would just tell the people, you know, keep at it. Being an entrepreneur is a, a fabulous job because what you're going to do at the end of the day, you're going to build wealth for your family. You're going to build value for your customers. You're going to build a great place to work for your employees, and you're going to continue to make Charlotte a better place. But as you move up that ladder, make sure you're pulling up the people behind you on the ladder too. Yeah. Because seek out help both ways. Get pulled up from above and pull the ones below you up. Absolutely. That is a great, great point to end on. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for spending some time with us today. Thank you for your time and what you do. It's great for the city of Charlotte. Thanks. Um, Where can people follow you? and the, all of the organizations that you're involved with on social media? Where can they get more information? You know, I need to do better at Twitter. I, I'm not really that good at Twitter, but, you know, at Keith Ludeman on Twitter. Uh, but I would tell you LinkedIn is probably the best way to connect. I, I've learned over the past year what a powerful tool LinkedIn is for communication, understanding what's going on. So I would encourage you to follow Innovate Charlotte and, uh, you know, Keith Ludeman on LinkedIn, and we'll, we'll keep you updated on what we do. Okay, great. And I'll link to all of that in the show notes as well. If people want to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at FunFailPodcast. You can learn more about the show at www.funwithfailure.com. If you want to say hi or find out about sponsorship opportunities, our email address is fun at funwithfailure.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And until next time, go have some fun.